Hi there, my name's Ollie Lloyd and welcome to the Food Talk Show. On today's show, we're joined by Ben Davies, the founder of Viper. Now, some of you may have come across Viper as they're very active in the food and drink space and recently did a seminar with the grocer. And you may even have seen their work that is where I first came across them on B Corp. So let me just start by introducing Ben and say a big thank you for joining the Food Talk Show. Good morning, Ollie. Uh, lovely to be here and thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. So st let's start off just by hearing a little bit about your business, why you founded it, and really what's your point of difference as a, as a research firm. So I'll, I'll give you the, the potted history of, of, of me, but more importantly, Viper. So my, my background actually is a, uh, a buyer. I was a buyer at Sainsbury's uh, and the, the co-op uh, in the early noughties, bought chilled food categories, mostly private label. Um, I've, I've I've done a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff since then, so, um, so Viper's the fifth business um, that I founded. But the relevance of, of my buying background is that the reason I actually started the business was um, to fix what I saw as quite a broken product innovation uh, process, I guess. Um, the, 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 the product attrition rate um, that, that's published by Nielsen every three or four years is, is still in the kind of the the, the, the mid to uh, mid to low 80%, something like that. So that, that's any, any product that doesn't last any longer than 12 months on shelf um, counts within that percentage, basically. So the, the, they, they brought, they're broadly saying that 85% of all new products that are launched uh, in the European grocery sector are gone within 12 months. And that, that, that implies a sector that's you know, maybe not optimized in terms of the, the stickability of innovation, the, the relevance of of innovation and the kind of the process used to bring that innovation to um, to, to market. So um, that that's what I wanted to try and improve, and, and I wanted to build a technology platform that, that would effectively make the consumer voice uh, accessible to um, to non-researchers specifically. And that's the important point, and I guess the kind of the relevance of of, of how we do some of the work that we do is that. Um, the you know the, the the platform is a product platform. It is designed for people to make more consumer centric decisions about product, and the the typical users, um, you know, as well as insight managers and research managers, are more innovation managers, category managers, um, brand marketeers, uh, for example. So it's um, yeah, it's 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 kind of a research platform for non researchers, uh, if, if if that makes sense. And if I can take you back to the, I suppose, to the reason you founded the business. Why do you think so many MPD products fail? So the more I dug into it, the, the, the more interesting it got. I mean, what, one of the, the, the first things is someone who's kind of been responsible for an, you know, a, a number of private label products um, that, that probably shouldn't have seen the light, in, light of day, really, in hindsight. The, the, the process to bring them to market is... It, well, it was, and, and it still is in a number of kind of retailers and bigger businesses that we work with. It's, it, it's too rigid. It's often referred to as stage and gate. It's a, it's a predetermined process and endpoint. So as in, when you, when you set off as a, as a product developer on, the, on point one of, a, of what can be like a 120 point um, stage and gate process, you have a predetermined end. You know exactly what the product is that you want to bring to market. You've got a good idea what the specification is. And there's, there's no ability to, 
to, or, or very little ability to take feedback from consumers, uh, to, to pivot, to, to go in slightly different directions, to, to test and optimize. So that the, the overall process felt too rigid to me and not consumer-centric enough. So I began to kind of look into how other sectors developed products. And one of the, the, the couple of things that I, I began to kind of read about were, were you know, things like Kanban and, and, and lean manufacturing from you know, businesses like Toyota, but then more importantly for me in terms of how I began to think it was, it was looking at the software development um, sector. So how, did, how are digital products brought to market? And that, you'll, you'll hear the buzzword agile all, all, all the time in that sector. And, and it's, you know, it's a really, really interesting, um, more flexible, more customer-centric way of bringing products to market. So I kind of took inspiration from how those guys did it and, and, and offered um, the FMCG sector a, a way to yeah, get that ability to pivot based on kind of day-to-day, -day, very, you know, very granular, very easy, accessible feedback from consumers. Uh, effectively, so so process would be the first thing, and then the the you know the, the, the cost that, that was put upon the suppliers and the retailers to a degree through that process, you know it's quite significant. I mean, even within private label, where the, there's not huge amount of research, and there's, there's you know the costs are they're, they're kept to a minimum. That you're looking at twenty to twenty five thousand pounds in in kind of soft cost for the supplier. That's before they've even sold a unit of. Um, of, of products, and that's just management time. It's things like um, shelf life testing. It's kind of production uh, testing, and and so you know they're they're, they're standing from a sorry they're starting from a, a low base in terms of um, recouping that cost. So the the, the, the process is too rigid. It takes too long. It absorbs too much time and energy and and, and cost. And and yeah, th those were some of the kind of the main reasons that I looked at and, and and tried to solve it through making the consumer voice more accessible, effectively. So how does that actually work then for a brand that chooses to work with you? I mean, how are you helping them run a more agile process that actually puts the consumer at that? So the, the, the platform itself, there's, there's, there's two elements. There's the client application, and, uh, and which I'll talk about in a, in a minute, but the, 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 I guess the important bit is the community. So in, in the UK, we have a, we have a community of, uh, of around 70,000 um, consumers, shoppers. You've got the Viper app installed on their smartphone. Um, and, and there's a percentage of those individuals are active on the, uh, the, the application at any one time. Um, and, it, and it means that clients can send out, uh, we, we call them steers effectively, but they're, they're, they're tests, that they are they're, they're, you know, short surveys, um, they're, they're pre-structured. So um, it doesn't require any kind of re research or insight knowledge. They're things like a pricing steer, for example, if you, want, if you want to understand price elasticity, you load up a pricing steer on the platform and it gets sent out to the consumers that you choose. They, they go through the process on the smartphone application and then the data comes back. So it's, it, it's pre-packaged, it's fundamentally a self-service platform. We, we have a, a lot of support structures in place uh, to make sure that clients kind of can you know, maximize the value from it very, very quickly. But yeah, fun fundamentally it's, it's pre-packaged to mirror the different use cases that, that we know executives go through when they're bringing, uh, bringing products to market. Um, you know, one of the kind of the key things that we that we continue to do well is is the speed of the insight generation because you can't talk about you know being uh, offering uh, an agile solution to to businesses without delivering the insight at speed. So we, we we talk in hours effectively. So a steer on the platform, it's a relatively kind of mass market demographic that's been targeted. It will get 250 responses in in you know 90 minutes, two hours, something like that. So you can you can be doing 
multiple uh, steers and tests a day. You can be very reactive if you're kind of in trade dialogue with, with retail partners, for example. Um, and it gives you the ability to, um, to test all the different elements of the, of the proposition as you're developing it through the, uh, through the internal process. But what I'm getting from that is rather than writing or producing a massive plan from a research perspective, what you're working on is a, a way of trying to sort of bring the consumer into the process where you're kind of in dialogue with them and asking them kind of numerous short questions that will obviously potentially evolve over time and may not be the questions you thought you were going to start out asking. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's the principle of Agile is that you do a test and then you look at the data and then you... You, you decide whether that kind of proved or disproved your hypothesis and then you do another test and you, and you move forward. I mean, I kind of liken it to a conversation. If you and I were going to go for a, a beer this evening, I, I wouldn't, before we met, I wouldn't list out the 20 things that I wanted to talk about in the order I wanted to talk about them. We'd, we'd sit down and we'd start talking about something and then we'd have a very organic conversation and we'd probably end up in a completely different place to where we started in terms of topic. And it's, it's a little bit more like that. It's, it's meant to be a little more... Um, conversational kind of re reactive and it, and it gives um, that ability to, to pivot to iterate and to end up at a position that's more relevant for the consumer but might not have been the position that the, the product developer or the business thought they would end up in in terms of the kind of final specified product so yeah absolutely it's that agile kind of monadic um, short form questions and prompts and just the ability to almost like have a, have a consumer sat on your shoulder all the way through the process that you can get constant um, dialogue and feedback from. Interesting. I mean, look, I spent 10 years at Unilever and, you know, one of the things they always talked about was the need to get closer to consumers and spend time, you know, out there in the shops, doing accompanying shops, actually going into their homes, observing things. It is interesting how on one level, because of social media, because of digital, we think we're really close to the consumer. But actually, this sounds like a really interesting way of bringing their voice into a development dialogue in a different way. Yeah, for sure. And we, we you know, we, we've done a lot of and continue to do research in, in behavioural science. So, for those listeners that haven't encountered behavioural science, it's effectively the study of, of you know, human decision making. Um, there's two two relevant bits of the of, of the brain that behavioural scientists talk about: system one and, and system two. And system one is uh, the autopilot, the kind of the emotive subconscious part of our brain that, that drives most of the decisions that we make every day. So picking out a, a shirt from the wardrobe in the morning, you know, buying your coffee, opening the car door, these are, these are not decisions that you're kind of evaluating pros, cons and, and rational functionality. That is just the way that, that our brains cope with, with modern life. And, and it holds true in, in, in shopping and retail as well in that most of the the, the drivers for consumers purchasing product are, are, are subconscious or, or emotive. Um, so, you know, a asking consumers to, to sit in a focus group with, with 10 other people for two hours and, you know, kind of reflect on, on why they, they, they purchase products, for example, it, it's a little bit flawed. I mean, I, th I think there is, th there's still a lot of mileage from, from deep um, understanding and deep empathy of your target consumers and, and you can definitely get that from you know face-to-face -face time and spending time with consumers and, and understanding how they kind of interact with your, your fixture or your category but um, there's, there's, there's so many kind of flawed historic methods of, of believing that you're in touch with the consumer when in reality you're, you're either kind of tapping into the wrong bit of the consumer's brain or 
you're, you're getting data that's going to send you down a completely uh, the, the completely wrong path. So yeah, it's it, it's really interesting um, field. So in in the world of food and drink, what are some of the things that have come out that maybe have surprised you and, and probably more importantly some of the clients you've worked with? The, the, there's a, there's a pattern often where there's um, there's thing initiatives that are done by the by the trade by the industry, um, and they they believe them to be you know to have a significant kind of driver on on consumer behaviour. When you test many of these initiatives, I'll try not to kind of name names, but let, let's just say like there's a, um, a kind of a sustainability body or a, uh, an organic you know body that have a, a flash on, on on packaging, and they they will claim that that will have a you know a net positive impact on consumer behaviour. When you when you do an A/B test, so you present a version of, of packaging that's got the said flash from from an industry body versus exactly the same packaging but with no flash at all, there, there, there tends to be very little um, difference in, in, in consumer understanding, in consumer appeal, in, in, in purchase intent. So there's the many initiatives that the kind of the trade embraces, they're not pulled out of the industry by consumers, they're pushed into the industry by the by the trade effectively. Um, and, and that holds true in, I, I, I'm assuming most sectors, it's not just a retail thing, but the, the, the amount of stuff that we see uh, in the industry now that is, yeah, as I said, it's pushed in by the trade. It's not pulled out by consumers. They're not genuine changes in kind of consumer behavior that, that's really driving an industry change. It's the, it's the opposite way around. And, and uh, you know, we're, the, our platform is quite good at kind of debunking some of those, or hopefully kind of proving that some of them might, might actually be, be, be correct. But um, yeah, the, the amount of time and resource that we see in some of these things is, is, is really wasteful, I think, yeah. But isn't there an interesting tension there? Because on so many levels, it's for industry to try and drive the conversation, to try and drive new habits. Let's take sustainability, let's take packaging waste, let's take you know organic or you know stuff that, you know, look, some of us, I mean, I'll put myself in that camp, believe are positive and potentially important initiatives for the world. Isn't there, isn't actually in some ways what we're talking about here is not necessarily that the initiatives are wrong, but the execution of the initiatives and the way they're delivered is actually not having the impact that they want. That, that, that's very fair. That, that, that is very fair indeed. So, so something like sustainability, to take that as an example, I don't think there's many consumers on the planet, hopefully, that would disagree that the general principle of living a more sustainable existence uh, is anything but a, a, a good one that most consumers should aspire to. As, as you say, that the, there's, big, there's big differences in what, certainly in what we see on the platform in terms of um, claimed behavior versus actual behavior. So, and, and it's very easy to get misleading data and therefore for the, for the trade bodies or the, or the businesses and the brands that are kind of getting behind a particular initiative, we'll carry on with the sustainability. Uh, example to, to, to believe it's it's a more important thing than it actually is and it's a bigger driver of consumer behavior than it actually is so sustainability versus affordability is, is an interesting one if you if you ask consumers on the Viper platform in fairness but all, all research panels you know a question like would you would you pay more for a sustainable version of a product that you buy uh, week in week out you, you, you will broadly get about 80 odd percent of consumers will say yes, I absolutely would. When you do an A-B test and one half of the respondents see the standard products at the price that they know 
uh, and that, that they buy week in, week out. And half see the same, the same product with a sustainability flash and it's 15% more expensive. That's when you begin to realize that actually the, the priorities, particularly in the current climate with you know, the challenges that we've been through, COVID and, uh, and cost of living, the principal driver by a country mile of, of consumer choice currently is, is affordability. It's, it's, you know, value is a subjective thing. Um, value can be different to different demographics and different income levels, that type of thing, but there's a real drive for affordability at the moment and, and it's um, sustainability and, and, and health and other topics, they, they can impact consumer behavior positively for sure, but it's, I'm kind of skipping around a few topics here, but w an example I've made a couple of times is about the plant-based sector. So the, the, uh, the point that, that meets alternative products, so, you know, um, burgers, sausages, bacon, chicken, whatever they are, that, that are, you know, made, made by the, um, the, the meat-free, the plant-based industry, at the point that they um, taste the same or better, and they cost the same or less than, than the meat equivalent, that's when you will see a big flip in consumer adoption. Um, and at the moment, the taste is kind of, it's pretty, it's pretty good and it's, you know, I'm not gonna talk about the whole, the whole category, but there's, there's some brands that have delivered that really well, there's others, others less so. But on the whole, the affordability is not there. And, that, and that's why the consumer behavior hasn't shifted. And, it, and it's the same with, with sustainability. At the point that sustainable products are effectively the same, the same you know, value proposition, the same price, to consumers that they've that they've known, that there's very few consumers are obviously going to kind of change their behaviour. If if and and therefore that puts puts the onus back on the industry to if if they re if the industry is really serious about about delivering sustainability, it needs to be delivered in line with affordability. And and at that point, the consumers will absolutely adopt it in their in their droves. But at the moment, the with, with you know a, a, a sustainable or organic versions of products typically costing a little bit more. That that's why the adoption is lower, or that's why there's a, there's maybe a false belief by the trade that these things are more important than they actually are. I mean, I think that makes total sense. But I think the one thing I'd also add to it, though, is isn't it also the case that sustainability, as the core reason to believe for a brand, is not enough? You need to find a way of actually concocting and building a story which really engages the consumer and actually inspires them to see that the whole brand story resonates with that target audience and they want to buy it and it's sustainable. That's part of it, but I, I, I think there's a sort of laziness which goes, what are the buzzwords of the industry? Let's put all those on pack and actually, by definition, because we are those things rather than something else, people will buy us and we'll charge a bit more because that's a bit more expensive to do. Yeah, you're right. The, 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 the level of differentiation when a brand is using messages that its competitors use, or even private label equivalents use. Um, th there's a perception from many brand owners that that's enough to get cut through. But you're, you're right; it's absolutely not because a lot of these messages now are kind of changes from category to, to category. But they're kind of table stakes, really. The, the many consumers expect to see sustainability messages, or you know, health messages, whatever the, it might be, relevant for that particular category and that they're not enough to get cut through. And then you get many examples of brands um, that think the more perceived benefits they can list on pack, the better. And then you get, you know, you see some packaging on shelf now and it's got, it'll have two or three health messages and it'll have a sustainability message. And 
maybe some sort of you know pack format value message, and it, and it, it, it all becomes a bit too much for the consumers. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure where this gets driven from at times because um, whether brands think that consumers are you know kind of rationally looking at each individual products on shelf and, and, and comparing them to equivalents and, and making a value judgment that's just not the way that consumers shop it as I said before it's back to the behavioral science that, that it's a very emotive um, automated kind of subconscious process that makes us pick up products and one of one of the big challenges for brand owners is, is bake, breaking habit ha- habit is a you know a key kind of tenet of behavioral science it's, it's one of the ways that we basically we we make less decisions as consumers because decisions are tiring we want to make less of them so therefore you know the, the kind of the cliched image of a, of a person following the same route around a large supermarket with a trolley and broadly picking up the same things week, week in week out it absolutely holds true it's because you, you don't want to go around you know as a consumer as a shopper picking up new things all the time because there's friction effectively so for, for brand owners particularly from a new either new brand or a new product perspective it's is really trying to understand how they can get that attention, how they can get that cut through, by using different messages, not ones that are used by the, the the brands and the products in that category already. But how do you encourage brands to do that? Because I think you're completely right. You know, they, there is this dependency on other or on messages and reasons to believe that everyone does, and, and sort of somehow, as I said earlier, that I think people do believe that that's enough. What, what do you, how do you think brands should be thinking about? you know areas like sustainability how do you communicate your positioning within sustainability in a way that's motivating because as you say maybe it is a table stake now maybe it's expected nowadays but how do you how do you differentiate yourself through sustainability or can you not well i'm that, i mean that's a really interesting question i'm not i'm not sure that um I'm not sure that it's that easy to, to do through a single execution of, of, of that message. It's it's you know it's a broader kind of execution of the story of that particular um, particular brand. Um, I I mean I think you know the, the, there's too many brands as you say are a little bit lazy uh, about this and they just seem to think the more benefits and the more versions of a message they get on pack or they get on marketing, the, str- the stronger it'll be. I guess that. Our role as a as a platform that offers the ability to to get you know safe feedback from consumers, so kind of almost treat the a, the, a testing platform as like a safe uh, as a laboratory to pl- to play around with your brand and packaging and proposition, is is just really go through a very empirical series of hypotheses, and using A/B testing, pricing, whatever whatever it might be, uh, under you know test many many different executions or or versions of messages or whatever it might be. To, to understand what gets cut through with your target consumer, and importantly, what gets cut through versus the competitors that are likely to be on shelf already. So it's, I, I guess our role is not necessarily to kind of advise the brands what they should do, it's, it's to advise them how they should go through a rigorous testing process to reach the position before they launch or before they make changes to packaging um, that they know will, will, will get the maximum cut through with consumers. and. They're often, you know, you, you can't rationally explain why execution A was stronger than execution B, but you can you can look at the resulting purchase intent data and say, you know, there's clearly a there's clearly something that's resonating here with with the, with the consumers about the way that we've executed this particular version of 
sustainability messaging, whatever it might be, and, and therefore we'll go forward on that basis. So that, that's kind of, I guess our role in the sector is about advising the testing process, not necessarily what the brands um, should do. It's interesting, isn't it? Because another sector that for me comes up where I think there's been confusion around how to differentiate and what is what are the category norms and how to play in an interesting way in the category norms is the kind of no and low category where actually a lot of people seem to be just their proposition is well we're no alcohol and, and, and I'm not sure how many people are doing a great job of, uh, of telling stories what, what's your what's your sort of perspective on that as a category and how people can actually differentiate and win in that category yeah I mean it, it's interesting I, I as a a broader rule across the sector, I don't see a great deal of innovation that's done off the back of really deep understanding of consumer pain points or you know, opportunities to kind of improve the lives it's of, of consumers. It's, it's often, you know, there'll be a couple of early brands in a particular category, No and Low being a, being a good example, that have, you know, the, the story of the founder might be that, you know, there was, often, there was a health issue sometimes or there was something kind of going on that was very personal to that individual and, and they built a brand off the back of it and that, that, that's great. You, you then often see a, a pattern where a lot of brands leap into that and, and, and they'll, they'll look at some market data and they'll be like, oh, lordy, you know, low and no is, is, is growing like buggery, albeit off a very low base. We're, we're going to pile in. And all of a sudden, you've got too many products on the shelf and not enough consumer demand because the, the, the category or, or, or the kind of the consumer trend, I guess, has not been given enough time to, um, to mature. I mean, that. As you say, no and low is one way of executing um, an indulgent alcohol-free drink. There's there's probably 150 different executions that you could uh, that you could look at, but no no and low has been adopted by the industry. Whether or not that that's unlikely to resonate with all consumers, it, to, to me, it's got kind of um, it doesn't feel particularly indulgent. It doesn't feel much like a much like a treat on a Friday night or a Saturday night to have something that's called no and low. Um, so, as I said, it's, it's about kind of, you know, understanding the consumer pain point and then really testing lots of different variations of, of how you can communicate that to consumers, but also move away from just the early, early adopters in a particular kind of nascent category and, and, and take something to a, 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 broader, a broader mass market. It's so true, isn't it, that these, these, these categories suddenly become sexy. A few brands have origin stories, have reasons to go into them, um, suddenly everyone is excited from private equity through to the big brands everyone piles in without really understanding what the, uh, the the actual consumer pain point is and you're right you know the early adopters might well pick up you know certain categories and, and, and start to drive them but actually if you want mass adoption you've really got to I think understand where where your product fits how you're going to drive that consumer change and how you're actually going to differentiate in the yeah, no, you, you're right, and, and the, the plant-based example um, is a is a good one. The, the, there is clearly a large body of consumers in in let's talk about the UK um, in, in in the UK who are open to the idea of, of eating less meat and um, you know consuming plant-based products, whether it be for health or diet or for sustainability reasons. It looks like to me, looking, for, looking from the outside, it looks like that, that market has become saturated very quickly with, with too many brands, too many private label offerings, and, and there's, there's now too much choice for a body of consumers that hasn't grown as much as that industry thought it was continuing to grow. As I said before, at the point that, that, that plant-based equivalents 
um, taste the same or better and cost the same or less, you'll see a, a far broader adoption. But for, for now, it's a market that's, that's grown too quickly, that's got too saturated, too many people have kind of thought, oh, this is um, you know, there's a huge opportunity here. And there's just, there's not enough consumers that have uh, grown into that, into that space. And it, and it happens a lot. I mean, there's plant-based, I think is, is, you know, it's, it's a significant category that will be here, um, will be here forever and, and hopefully continue to grow. But there's, there's examples like cold brew coffee, for example, and, you know, there's, I'm sure there's some very good products and brands out there, but the, it, again, it feels to me like the quantum of brands and executions and solutions are all very similar. Um, you know, it's just, it's far outweighs the consumer demand, it looks to me. And, it, and it's very easy to look at a, um, some market data and say, Christ, this category or this subcategory is growing really, really quickly. But they're, they're growing off a base of virtually zero. It's easy to get 200% growth when, when, you know, as, as, a, as a nascent category in the UK, it's turning over maybe 10 million or something like that. It, that that's quite easy. It's, it's how do you maintain that, that growth? And that, that's really about education of consumers and how do you drive penetration with, with different demographics and, and that's different ex execution of different messages. So it's, it's fascinating, but very, very complex. Well, I think the other thing is, I think we're also, we live in an age where we think everything happens instantaneously. You know, you, you click a button and, and things happen. The reality is you look at a lot of the categories, I mean, as a random example, you pick, you know, the electric car category. The reality is that, I mean, I, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I remember, you know, the Sinclair C5, right, as being the innovative, you know, electric car. And, you know, here we are almost 40 years later, and we're still not at a universe where everyone drives electric cars. It's probably not even above 20% yet. So, A, this stuff takes time, but also, I think there's also that danger, which I see a lot, I think, in the food and drink industry, where people look to America and make the assumption that just because it worked in America, it's going to work here. And I just think the, this is a really quite a different market in many ways. Yeah, it is for sure. And, and that, that's, a, that, that's a very good example of some very strong technical innovation that's maybe not um, married completely with the understanding of kind of the consumer pain point and you know, things like affordability. And, you know, one of the things that I, mean, I, I read about technology as much as I can, that the self-driving car market, which is mainly being developed in the US, that, that baffled me somewhat because I'm just not sure that's, that's kind of um, really wedded to a particularly solid understanding of consumer problems, consumer pain. I actually think many consumers quite like driving and, and the, the flexibility that it gives you and the versatility and actually the prospect of getting in a car that's driven by a robot is probably quite terrifying to most people. Yet there's many tens of billions of, of dollars have been chucked at businesses who've been trying to develop self-driving cars and you know there's there's many examples but yeah now what, what you say is, is, is spot on. I mean the American thing for me is particularly true also where affordability is concerned because I do think you know you look at the price of food in the US and it is extraordinary um, and what people are prepared to spend on things far outstrips I think what what we are here I do think there's also you know you I know in your um, your talk you gave but the grocer you know you sort of said the three trends you thought that were, were important for 24 were affordability affordability and affordability and I do think that that is particularly true in the UK at the moment and we just need to be realistic about where we are in our kind of economic cycle yeah and hopefully you know I am one of those consumers and hopefully that will that will ease as we go through 20 24 but yeah I mean like the, the level of disposable income that US households have compared to UK households is, is hugely different and, and therefore the ability to 
to spend on discretionary items is, is, is vastly different uh, as well. And I think in, in that grocer uh, webinar, I was asked a question about you know things like cuisines and things for next year. But I think everything um, in terms of new trends, in terms of you know, new cuisines, things like that, kind of bringing it back to food, consumers are generally kind of open to stuff, but it has to be delivered, particularly in the current climate, with, with affordability. And that, that makes things accessible. You know, if, if, if the industry is saying, right, South Korean barbecue is, is the big hot thing, but when those products are bought to market in retailers, they're, they're 30, 40% more than kind of equivalents that people know, you're not, you're not going to break those habits back to this behavioral science piece. I mean, we're, we're creatures of habit, and, and to break us out of those, it takes quite a lot for brands and for new products and, and new cuisines as well. And, you know, I think people are more likely to embrace versions of fit of whether they be cuisines or trends that they know and love already. So I think I talked about the, the, the fact that there's consumers more interested in like regional versions of Italian cuisine rather than trying completely new cuisines because they, they know Italian. They've been eating it for 20, 30, 40 years. It's a very easy kind of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a category that doesn't really challenge consumers particularly. But So they'd like to be a bit more adventurous within that safer space rather than kind of completely embarking into something, into something new. But there's always that challenge, isn't there? Which is there are always new brands, new entrepreneurs, people who are excited by things who try and drive these new trends. And the reality is often an existing trend, as you say, like Italian, actually has a lot of mileage within it. I mean, I think if we actually look at the innovation that's gone on in, in the Italian market over the last three, four years, is incredible. You know, I think, you know, pasta evangelists, you know, different, you know, formats of, of pasta, different sources, different flavours, as you say, regionality. I think occasionally we kind of, we look too far into the future when we think about the new trends and the new emerging spaces when actually there's some proper innovation that can be done to make a, a real household favourite just a hell of a lot more interesting and appealing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're, we're creatures of habit, we're creatures of comfort, we, we like what we know. Um, you know, when there's, there's, a, there's a definite trend in the UK of, of scratch cooking, so people cooking from, uh, from you know, basic ingredients now, and I think that 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 gives the perception that that we're a nation of like foodies using elaborate ranges of spices and herbs and doing all sorts of of, uh, of cooking at home. But the actually, when we speak to Viper consumers, what they're doing is that they're making things like spaghetti bolognese and chili and shepherd's pie, and they're, they're products that they know and love. They're not intimidating. They're that they're, they're quite comforting. But consumers have begun to realise that they can make probably make a better version themselves, and, and from a relatively simple base of ingredients so that that kind of simplicity that 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 comfort that ease that's what consumers want and look if you look at jamie oliver's latest book and he's always an interesting one to look at the reality is is you know he's about five ingredients now one of those ingredients might well be a slightly different vegetable or a slightly different type of chili sauce but actually in combination bringing five things together in an interesting way you know one of which may be pre-prepared is scratch cooking i do think that word is, is quite misunderstood and, and look on having found a great of chefs and spent years doing you know kind of ex extreme cooking with sous vides and crazy barbecues and blow torches I'm you know probably a, you know a terrible culprit in this area but I do think that you know on a, on a weeknight people are doing increasingly interesting things but it's still relatively simple yeah and it, it's off a base of, of things that they know and, and you know con consumers will they, they will move away from those type of things but it tends to be kind of their iterations away from what they know, rather than big steps into the uh, into the unknown on the on the whole. In in terms of households, and as you know, the, the the scratch cooking trend is 
was and, and, and definitely still is driven by affordability reasons. So people started doing it because it, it, they realised it was a it was a cheaper way to shop, and, uh, and that habit seems to have stuck. And, and maybe in time, as as the scratch cooking habit sticks and, and, and grows, then what consumers do at home will will change and iterate as well. But for now, it's it's still largely driven by cost, and it's still very often driven by comfort and ease. So Ben, then to end, give us your scratch cooking classic. Oh well, I I do a killer lasagna so um, my, my top secret ingredient I think this is actually from a Delia Smith recipe back in the 80s <laughs> that my mum passed on to me uh, is adding chicken liver to the mince it gives an amazing depth to the lasagna and it's just a, it's one additional ingredient that's pretty affordable you can get it at most most supermarkets in the frozen aisle and it, and it brings an incredible depth to a product that most people absolutely adore hang on let's dig into that are you saying you put the chicken liver into the mince and then kind of pan fry it to begin with and then put it into the into the lasagna? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what you, you do the onions and the garlic and then add the mince and then, and then you add the liver and just yeah, you, you fry it off and then add things like the tomato and that's how you make the, um, the, uh, the, the, the meat sauce. And then, yeah, just do the lasagna as you would from there. Yeah, works a treat. Excellent, I love it. So Ben, we got you on to, onto the Food Talk show to talk about research and you ended up sharing a recipe. And I have to say, I've cooked my fair number of lasagnas in my time that was not exactly one I, I expected, but I like that. I will definitely uh, give that a try. Very good. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you, Ben, for joining us and um, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Arlene, and, and thanks again for the invite. Thanks for listening to The Food Talk Show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast.